0: Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone of the Department of History at Augustana College. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. On the 1st of March, 1815, Napoleon Bonaparte returned to the coast of France. On the 20th, his son's birthday, he arrived in Paris and once more proclaimed himself Emperor of France. Immediately, he began to prepare for war, knowing that none of the European powers that had defeated him the previous year would tolerate him the second time around. On June 15th, He led his Army of the North in a sudden dash across the border of Netherlands to defeat the Allied armies massing there under the command of the Duke of Wellington and Field Marshal Blucher of the Prussian Army. My guest today is Gareth Glover, author of Waterloo, Myth and Reality. He is a retired naval officer who for the last 30 years has amassed a truly phenomenal knowledge of the entire span of the Napoleonic Wars. But perhaps most extraordinary is his patient collecting of hundreds of primary sources, which have now appeared in some 20-odd edited volumes from a variety of publishers. But it's to Waterloo that we turn our attention today. Um, Gareth, thanks so much for uh, being with us. Um, I'm really uh, anxious for everyone to hear about you know how you did what you've done uh but let's g- gallop through the entire hundred days shall we mm-hmm. um you can lead us off
1: okay not the easiest thing to do actually because uh it's a fun complicated subject but anyway let's go through it in brief detail as best as we can uh, yeah for the start off. perhaps people don't realize why napoleon was actually on elba Uh, He'd actually been defeated after a huge obviously war that had gone on for 22 years. He'd been forced to abdicate and he'd been put on the island of Elba, thinking he was safe there. Uh, However, that's only just off the Italian coast, for those who don't know where it is. Uh, It didn't take him long, about 10 months, to work out that the French weren't very happy with their new king. And he returned to France, sailing there with only a thousand men. He arrived on the coast on the 1st of March. And to be honest, his march to Paris, which everyone thought would be defeated very quickly, actually turned into a celebratory romp across the country, I suppose, with the fact that uh, the army sent to defeat him just turned up on his side again and just turned over
0: there to his side. You have uh, one great uh, placard, um, which was put up in Paris, from Napoleon to Louis the 18th, my good brother, there is no need to send me any more troops, I have enough.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Well, when you say he had enough, perhaps he
0: was a bit uh,
1: hopeful there. He had 200,000 200, soldiers. Um, and at the same time, he had all of the European allies at the Congress of Vienna decided to actually um, declare war on him, not on France, on him personally, to, in- to ensure he was eradicated from the Euro- European scene. Um they had over a half a million men forming up to actually attack france and he had to obviously make a decision and what he did did he stand back defend france with uh, using the sort of uh, lines of fortresses on the french borders and then defend paris in, in, as well as he could or did he go on the attack and to be honest, if you ever look at Napoleon, he was always the arch gambler.
0: Yeah, Napoleon was um, always a chancer, I guess. He was always ready to take the go on the attack and take a gamble. Although you uh, make clear he had made extraordinary preparations um, for both the defense, he was making extraordinary preparations for the defense of Paris. And also at the very end of the book, you suggest even for his eventual defeat.
1: Uh, Yes. Um, He obviously was making sure that he could try to defend Paris if he had to. Um, He obviously started great works around Montmartre, etc. He put his... His manufacturing base back on a war footing as quickly as he could. He paid off all the bills for the uh, merchants, etc., that are outstanding, so they would start supplying his army again. He set up manufactories to quickly build as much equipment as they could. Uh, he looked at actually raising his army as quickly as pop- possible. And he obviously looked at even the basics of horses and his gendarmerie, obviously the police force for France, was immediately unhorsed, and every single horse handed to the army, and he gave them 600 francs each to go and buy a new horse. Hmm. So he did everything possible to actually turn
0: his his army round very quickly into a great military force again. And, and yet, uh, unsurprisingly, uh, given that about uh, a million Frenchmen had already died uh, from uh, in, his, in the wars, um, not that many people want to join the army. No, he had hundreds of
1: thousands of uh, men who had actually avoided uh, joining up when they'd been called up uh, from the wars of 1814. And, in fact, strangely enough, one of his first things to do when he returned was to order them to join up again, as if they were going to suddenly (laughs) just change ideas. Um, uh, Obviously, that didn't work overly well. uh, And, to be honest, there were a large number of people in France who had, to be honest, had enough of Napoleon. They had suffered too much. Every family knew somebody that had died, either a close family member or very close, you know, somebody in the community. And it was to the point where they'd had enough. They were exhausted of war. Um, but his support was from the army and a few others, you know, that were really very much the, the Napoleonists. Um, and it was them he relied on. But because of all this trouble behind the scenes, he did struggle to get his army to grow at the pace he wanted to. He actually wanted to raise 200,000 men in the first three months, and he managed about 95,000. I mean, it's still a, a sizable number, but it's nowhere near
0: what he needed. Right, and we can also then, I think, infer, and you suggest, that certainly the quality of the army was not what he was used to in the, in the moments of his greatest success.
1: Not as great. Um, certainly an awful lot of veterans returned to the army, um, and obviously that had a big effect. But there was certainly a number who were either, either who volunteered, who had not any experience, or were dragged to the cause, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because of that, uh, it wasn't the perfect army. However, he was actually about to fight uh, a, an allied army under Wellington that was full of very inexperienced uh, second battalions, both British, Dutch and Hanoverian troops. And the Prussians also had also seen most of their army disbanded after the 1814 war, and they actually had to recruit again. So although he had problems, the quality of his troops was certainly probably better than anybody else's at the start of the war.
0: Right, and you, you make that for example, you say ex- explain very carefully that the Prussian army was was it mostly uh, or at least a plurality or a majority was essentially militia, the Landwehr that had been formed during um, the basically the period when Napoleon was uh, making Prussia into a protectorate. Yes, but even some of those
1: are disbanded, as I say, in eighteen fourteen, so that you've got even newer recruits wow. having to join up for that
0: right and and it's so wellington also on the on the opposite side the we imagine um inaccurately perhaps that it's his peninsular army but that has been completely disbanded and as you make uh, quite clear uh the, both the, the important stuff of command the logistics and the staff work were also not up to his peninsular standard
1: no um he spent a lot of time in his early days back in belgium when he joined the army and um, complaining about the lack of personnel and also the quality of the officers he'd had in the peninsula. Um, some of those did manage to arrive in time, but they were very late and very close to the day. Um, some of the troops were actually, were en route to uh, to, to go to Canada to, to fight in the uh, War of 1812-14, but obviously that had just completed. Yep and were turned around so he got some troops that he would have wanted but there were lots of other troops who were were classed as what we would class as second battalions that is in the army it's the recruiting battalion that stays at home and actually has the new recruits and sends them off to the first when it requires extra troops Uh Uh, these were actually in Belgium already and were certainly not of the standard he'd known in in the past um, and you can see that in the the lack of control he has over the army that he would normally have expected in Spain, because he was a real control freak, if we're honest about it. Yeah,
0: he absolutely was. Uh, uh, thing is, he was good at it, which is not usually the case with 95 percent of the control freaks in the world. Um, but he was very good at being a control freak. Um, who are the other uh, B- Prussians? Uh, we've got the British. Who are the other uh, allied uh, components? often overlooked? You make a, quite a careful point to include them all in this.
1: Yeah, well, it's very important, particularly with regard to Wellington's army, to understand that there were a number of contingents there. Um, the Holland and Belgium had just been announced as a Kingdom of the Netherlands, so both of their armies were actually involved in this under the Prince of Orange, uh, who controlled them, um, But obviously there was a mixed feeling there because although the Dutch were very much more independent, the Belgians had actually been fighting for Napoleon up until very recently. And although some were actually uh, not so keen to have him back, there were certainly elements within the Belgian community that were actually almost hoping for his return because he would rather the French than the, the Dutch looking
0: after them. Y- yes, there are legendarily plenty of people in, in Brussels had the tricolor ready for when the emperor returned.
1: That's right. There are certainly, certainly stories of that. Whether it's 100% true, I don't know. But, yeah. um But beyond that, you've then got to look into the German states, because, of course, Germany wasn't a single entity in those days. It was a number of states, uh, the largest of which was Prussia, uh, which obviously slowly grew in the the 19th century into Germany. But you also had a number of other German states who were at that time allied to Britain and to the Allied cause. Uh, The Hanoverians, Hanover was actually part of the British Empire, if you want to call it that at the time. It was actually controlled by George III. And they provided troops both to the King's German Legion, which was part of the British Army.
0: And and arguably one of the finest uh, outfits of the the war, uh, the King's German Legion. They certainly
1: were, although um, their qualities had started to die off towards the end of the war, because uh, as the German National Army started to rise, the number of recruits for the King's German Legion started to ease off. And... Mm members of other nationalities started joining so it wasn't a purely German force at the end and they had been very close to being sent home in early 1815 and a number of officers and men had actually decided that they were going to go home before um, they were under under the idea that that uh, force might be sent off to the West Indies mm-hmm. uh, which was well-known to most British um, people at the time, as basically the graveyard of the army.
0: It was basically a death sentence if you were being sentenced. Absolutely,
1: yeah. Yeah, Yeah, with with the the sort of fevers out there, malaria, et cetera.
0: Yeah, I mean. 80%, I think there's an 80%, sometimes an 80% fatality rate in some of the units, so it's it's uh, extraordinary.
1: It was extraordinary, (laughs) uh, uh, terrible, to be honest. It was amazing that anybody ever ever volunteered to go there.
0: Yeah, yeah, Um, so, That's the, those are, and the the Nassauers, who are are they part of the Netherlands or the, or are they a German state? It's a German state,
1: um, but they actually, uh, on the day, form two different sections. One is they provide a battalion themselves, Uh but at the same time, they also supply two battalions to the, the Dutch army or the Netherlands army who was having trouble actually finding enough recruits of its own, but found plenty of recruits in Germany. So they actually ended up with three battalions of Nassau troops there, two of which fighting under a Netherlands flag and one fighting under their own country
0: flag. So on June 15th, Napoleon leads his army of the north across the border. Um, mm-hmm. I was, uh, you had briefly discussed the sort of intelligence war that's preceding this and is done, I think, which is, I think, the... Could be a topic of a separate book. It's really amazing the sophistication of both uh, counterintelligence, and intelligence on both sides, uh, yeah. and, and also deception operations. What classic deception operations that Napoleon undertakes, uh, partly yeah. to conceal where he is, because wherever he is, the Allies know will be where the war begins. Um, but we don't have time to pass to get, get into that. But it's it's yeah. fascinating stuff. Um, what happens then? What does he What does he decide to do? What's his Napoleonic uh, strategy and t- the tactics to achieve that strategy?
1: Well, the two armies that he's facing are that the Allied Army under Wellington and Blucher's army, uh, both of which are of a similar number to what the French army is. Uh, Wellington's got about 95,000, Blucher's got about 120,000, and Napoleon's got about 120, 125,000. So together they can completely overwhelm him. Uh, so his aim is to to split them and defeat them independently at different times. Uh, and therefore, he, when he launches his attack on the 15th, uh, that attack is made along the weakness of the, of approximately where the two armies join.
0: And this is a classic move of his. This is something he's done with success since 1798.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it is it's. In the early stages of this, this short war, Napoleon certainly shows all of the abilities he has shown at any other time in his life. And if one of my points is, is that it questions, uh, some of the questions some of the statements that are made later when he loses, that his um, abilities had waned because he was certainly on his best those first few days. Yes now once uh, once we get into um, the attack on the fifteenth that is basically designed to push the two armies away from each other. Um, this it succeeds to an extent. Uh, the Prussians start um, forming up around the area of Ligny, a small village, and at the same time Wellington's army is completely surprised, it's actually further away and takes longer to pull together, and starts on the 16th forming up around an area called Catebra, a crossroads, about 10 to 12 miles away from Ligny, with the intention they can actually still work together. But because Napoleon has managed to get ahead of the game slightly, on the 16th he ends up uh, facing the Prussian army, with around about, the Prussians carrying around about 80,000 men and he, he about 70,000 men in the area of Ligny and starting a battle there while he sends off Marshal Ney to hold uh, Wellington's troops as they pr- arrive at Quatre-Bras. Um This becomes an encounter, of, uh, so a, a, an encounter battle where literally units arrive and start fighting. So Wellington he spends the day trying to just hold on to a position and to form his army up and at the same time Napoleon has been able to actually turn his main force against Blücher and bring him to battle. Um, I have to say with the fact that Blücher wanted a battle and would, wouldn't have done anything else but but so, um, his nickname with the army was Marshall Forwards and he wasn't going to retreat anywhere without being defeated.
0: So if we imagine this as a, a boxer against two opponents, he gives a stiff left arm to Wellington on the boxer's left while Going for the knockout or at least the disabling punch to the guy on on his right. That's what Napoleon's yeah. doing. Yeah, and then they'll turn around and get the other guy, smash him, knock him out, and then he'll turn back and smash and, and completely knock out the Prussians. That's the that's the theory. And it's worked before.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean it was as I say, it was a classic way of doing it. Um, obviously we now get into the situation of what happens at those battles. Right. Um uh, Ligny Is a very bloody, nasty battle, fought over a lot of villages along a river line where they're just literally fighting bayonet to bayonet all all day to try and actually win control of the small bridges across the streams. But eventually, Napoleon, in the evening, manages to break through with his guard and to force the Prussians to flee the battlefield. At the same time, the battlefield at Catebrah, has turned slightly against Napoleon, although he's not aware of this at this stage, with Marshal Ney just about holding on as Wellington's army does form up, and a stalemate battle really is what it ends up as, where they actually uh, end up in the position they really started at the start of the day, but in a position where Wellington is actually thinking about attacking the following day, Mm. unaware at that stage that the Prussians have actually been defeated. Uh, we then go into the, day, the 17th, which is the following day. Right. At this point, this is where, I guess, if you want to look at a point in history, this is when Napoleon loses the Waterloo campaign. Right. Um, he assumes, without a great deal of evidence, that the Prussians have been so badly beaten, they are fleeing for the German border, that they are not going to be in the war any longer. And after a long delay, uh, he, that afternoon, sends Marshal Grouchy off with about 30,000 men just to chase them away and to effectively ensure that there are none of those troops are going to join Wellington at any stage. And he turns his focus on Wellington. He marches the rest of his army to join Ney at Catrebras, which would then obviously completely o- would have overwhelmed Wellington. But he arrives at Catebrough to find out that Wellington has heard that Marshal uh, Blücher has actually retired and been beaten. And he has already marched his army to the rear, about 15 miles towards Brussels, to a point he'd actually already chosen at a place called Mont Saint-Jean, which later, and we'll explain why later, actually has become known as the, the battlefield
0: of Waterloo. So at this moment, there are two great decisions to be made by Blücher and Wellington, except Blucher is basically lost on the battlefield and unconscious, right? So it's it's his chief of staff that ultimately decides not to retreat to the German border.
1: That's correct. Yeah. Nice. Uh, now, uh, his chief of staff actually decides that um, he will follow the plan that has been agreed by the Allies from the start, that they will keep in touch with each other. Um, he is fully aware of Wellington's chosen position at Mont Saint-Jean in advance and orders the Prussian army to retreat on Wavre which will mean he's only about 20 miles to the east of the position that Wellington is going to set. Uh, most of the Germans actually do retreat in that direction. Around about 10,000 do retreat towards the actual German border. They, they break off. These actually cause Grouchy to actually mistakenly believe that he is following the fleeing German army, uh, Prussian army, and therefore for a long period napoleon and Grouchy are unaware that the prussians are now within very close uh, distance of wellington's army
0: so von nysau decides to stay with a plan and so does the duke he decides not to retreat uh, through brussels um he is going to he's going to trust that the prussians will come and so he goes to this pre-selected battlefield. What are the crucial features of of the Waterloo battlefield as the Duke saw them and as then they turn out to be?
1: Right. The first and most obvious one is if you look at any Wellingtonian battlefield, there is always a ridge, a ridge line, which he can place his cannon on and he can place his main infantry and cavalry uh, battalions behind, giving them a great deal of protection from the enemy artillery it also means that the enemy is not really sure how many are there where they're sighted where his strengths are where his weaknesses are so he plays that game of not not allowing the other general to know what's over the Mm ridge at the same time he actually chooses a position which has three sights in its front um, one on the left, one on the right, and one in the centre, which are farmhouse complexes, which can be turned into makeshift fortresses. Uh-huh. Uh, these are the farmhouses of Hougamont, La Hayson, and the Papalo area on, the, on Wellington's left. These form quite large defensive positions on his front line, which makes it difficult for Napoleon to attack his front line on a wide front. They have to pass through a narrow front between these fortresses or take them. That's his choice at the start of the battle. So the actual field is actually uh, set out perfectly for Wellington. He had seen the battlefield 12 months before and had chosen the position, had agreed that, that he was going to stand there with Blücher, but he only stood there because he had slightly less troops than actually napoleon did and he only stood there with the promise that blue who was coming to join him
0: so he fortifies these uh, three farmhouse or settlements mm-hmm. um, which are admirably set up for defense and they have garden walls they have hor- orchards uh, with really thick hedgerows around them the, the houses themselves are basically small farmhouse castles and in many ways, the battle really hinges upon control of those three farmhouse complexes. What happens there? It starts at about what, 11 in the morning. What's That's, of course, open to debate.
1: Yes. I mean, if you actually read a hundred different... Um sort of letters from the peers you get a hundred different times but they actually we all believe now it was about 1130 that the battle started uh, started obviously with a huge cannonade from napoleon's forces he had at least a hundred more cannon than uh, wellington's army um, and he therefore looked to actually pummel the their defenses before he attacked and the first stage of the battle is that Napoleon, and you can de- debate what for what reason, but I believe that he actually uh, intended to take it to actually uh, threaten Wellington's right. Napoleon actually was looking at um for a number of reasons. There are questions as to whether it was just a faint attack, but to be honest, uh, possession of it would have meant that Napoleon had a position really threatening uh, Wellington's right, and it would have been a very uncomfortable position for Wellington to have held if Hougoumont had been taken. Um, at the same time, it did have a benefit in that it would cause Wellington to pull his reserves into ensuring that he did not lose it, um, and that was initially how it appeared to have been started, but it certainly became a battle within a battle. And for the rest of the day, uh, Napoleon's left wing, his, his core of real, actually spent the day trying to take this and, and fail.
0: And meanwhile, there are two other battles going on at La Haye Sainte and uh, what's the Papillot? Um,
1: yes, yeah, I mean. You can't look at any battle and put it into nice little compartments. Right. Uh, there's always fighting going on in every area. Uh, L'Hessant was, was, was obviously attacked about the same time as uh, he... Well, sorry, Napoleon actually launches his second attack, which is actually his right under Dale on, um, against Wellington's left. He actually launches these 18,000 men against Wellington's left, which is probably only about 10,000 men get... Uh, defending that area uh, hoping to smash through and drive all the way through to Mont Saint-Jean farm in in the distance Uh Um, as part of that they also engaged around La Hessante farmhouse trying to break that farmhouse down and and capture that which would actually mean that Wellington Centre was under great threat. Uh, Again this was defended extremely well by the forces within there And it was a lot later in the day before that was captured. But Dalon's troops, after the heavy cannonade, marched across uh, the the thousand yards or so before we get to Wellington's Ridge, thinking they were going to break through. And certainly Wellington's infantry, when they faced them, were outnumbered, outgunned. And although they fought well, were probably at the position where they were about to be outnumbered when... The Marquis of uh, Anglesey, or what he was then known as Uxbridge, actually picked the perfect moment to launch the British heavy cavalry. The French infantry were already disordered by the fire from the British infantry and were not in any way prepared for a a major cavalry encounter. Uh, They weren't able to form up to actually save themselves, and the actual cavalry just charged through them, swinging their swords to left and right and causing horrendous injuries and deaths in their thousands. Three to four thousand were killed, three to four thousand were captured on top of that, who threw their weapons down were captured, and the rest turned and fled. The whole of that 18,000 just fled for their own lines. Uh, At this stage... Go ahead. Sorry, at this stage, uh, this was a, a huge success. But the British Cavalry were not renowned for keeping control of themselves. And on this occasion, they then unfortunately decided to follow up this fleeing enemy and to charge the French guns on the other side of the valley. Uh, A number of them did arrive at the French guns, having taken quite a lot of casualties from them on their route towards them. But having got there, their horses were tired and then they were faced with new French cavalry, Lancers particularly, coming in on their, from the wings onto their uh, rear and threatening to cut their return back to the British lines. They were forced to, the British were forced to actually turn and try to force their way back through. Many did, but just as many failed and were lanced uh, down and killed at that point. In fact, by the time the heavy cavalry had got back to their starting point, probably half of them were missing and they would have spent force for the rest
0: of the day. So after this, after the famous charge of the heavies, there are numerous French cavalry attacks over the ridge onto the, uh, f- the British uh, troops massed on the reverse slope, uh, which form square and defend themselves against these French cavalry attacks. Um, how long do those attacks go on?
1: Uh, that's right. This is about now on the French, on the British right, and um, the French cavalry atta- charge this side. Um, these cavalry attacks go on from around about half past three till about half past five, six o'clock. Can't be exact with the figures because I say, but you're talking about two hours or so of continuous waves of massed cavalry uh, charging up the actual uh, the ridge, coming over the top and being met by these. Uh, Allied troops formed in squares, uh, forming effectively islands of which these actual cavalrymen would actually uh, ride around, unable to break in, but desperately looking for uh, an opening, a weakness by which they can actually break in and actually break up these squares. Um, But this goes on, and they're probably some some say up to 16 attacks it's impossible to know how many mm-hmm. uh, of these waves of attacks but eventually uh they failed not one square is known to have actually been broken into eventually and the french cavalry have to slowly regroup and return to their own lines again another spent force mm-hmm. uh, and as you can see, you know, large parts of both armies are now effectively worn out and have not much use for much further action.
0: And then, me, and then, just at a, sometime between five thirty and basically six thirty, uh, the Hougomont, uh, La Haye and these these fortress farmhouses begin to fall. The, Napoleon begins to capture them.
1: Yeah, well, only only La Haye
0: Only La uh, Hous- Hous- Sorry. Le-
1: yeah, Hougoumont is held throughout the day, and so is the Papalo area. The okay. uh, Haysant in the centre does fall. Um, we have a, a situation where the troops within eventually run out of ammunition. Yeah. They're forced to actually flee to the Allied lines, and the French are therefore now have got a forward base from which they can launch attacks against the centre of Wellington's army. So...
0: At this point, Wellington is uh, beginning to... Everything's coming down to this moment. Uh, that, that is what he sees. That's what most people on the battlefield must have seen. Well, that's what Napoleon must have thought as well. Yeah, I think
1: it, uh, many Allied officers are honest enough to say that around about 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock, they thought they were going to lose the battle. Um, I think Wellington knew it was very close. He was constantly hoping to see the Prussians appear and actually change the fortunes of the battle because he he was relying on them to help him um, and Wellington did what he could in the sense of he, he did bring as many troops as he could in from the wings all of this was to strengthen the center which he knew was now a weakness and obviously was under great threat from the French troops who could form up very very close to his front line uh, around the La Ressante area uh, so it's only to say at that point Uh, When Napoleon probably thinks that he's got the winning of the battle, um, he suddenly finds he's got the Prussians on his right rear. Um, They've decided to launch attack against the village of Planshenwa, which is on his right rear. Um, This causes him to have to send some of his reserves immediately to stop them breaking through into his rear. Um, He initially sends Count Lo- Count Lobau's um, corps which is a small corps into the area to try to actually stop them uh, this isn't enough and he has to then send his young guard in and some elements of his old guard which are his reserve best troops of all and they actually eventually manage to stabilise the situation in what is another very hard fought bayonet to bayonet fight in the village of Planchenois
0: and um, and I have to point out, this is something we'll get to in a second, in, in sort of traditional British histories of the of Waterloo, this is often left out. Um, what, what happens next in a British history is the Old Guard attacks, but in point of fact, uh, that was only part of the Old Guard Reserve that attacks Wellington Center.
1: Uh, yes, it was. I mean, it was only a small part of the old guard that actually went to war, and actually some of those returned oh, to okay. take part in the actual uh, attack on Wellington, which we'll mention now. But um, certainly, uh, yeah, if I'm honest, um, British history of the battle sometimes plays down the importance of the Prussian arrival. Uh, I think it's fair to say that more modern times has actually seen that they're uh, – input was actually important, in vital, yep. and it has to be said in honesty that Wellington, after the battle, made it very clear that their actual input was actually vital to his even standing there in the first place.
0: Right. So now, the, now Napoleon launches his, what he hopes will be his final attack against the British Centre.
1: Yeah, this is Napoleon again. It is decision time. Does he go for broke, or does he actually... Um, decide that he's going to fight another day he could have went with the Prussians on his on his rear now he could have decided to pull his army away would have been difficult but it's possible um however he decides to he decides to roll the dice one more time and see if he can get a double six <laughs> um, and he launches his final reserve his old guard and the middle guard as they're called um in an attack on Wellington Centre. Um, this attack is put put into action. It puts Wellington's line under a huge amount of pressure, but the British Guards and uh, Adams Brigade do actually eventually defeat the guard, and the guard are forced to actually retreat. At this point, Wellington so Napoleon's army is already aware that there is something going on in their right rear they have been told it's the arrival of Grouchy and his troops Uh but it becomes even more clear that it's not friendly forces and there is a fight going on in their right rear and as they also become aware of this and they see their own guard who are never defeated starting to actually retire they are starting to think about retreat and then the the Allied cavalry by Wellington are launched en masse against the French and
0: it seems to turn what was probably going to be an organized retreat Uh into a complete rout. And the French army flees, Napoleon flees, and uh, you devote a chapter to actually the pursuit, often also uh, forgotten, and also the movement of the Allied armies uh, into France. Um, We're going to have to not pursue that because of uh, time limitations, uh, just in the remaining 10 minutes, I want to ask you some uh, sort of the, the questions about the thing, the things behind that you've done in this book. Um, one of the uh, sort of types of uh, ideas and historical thinking that we all, I often talk to my undergraduates about is uh something a colleague of mine calls engravings he says it's not the things that you the facts that you don't know about history that are a problem it's the things that you believe are true but are myth are mythical uh, that are the problem and uh, throughout your book you smash engraving after engraving after engraving um Many of them, not surprisingly to me, come from, as it were, popular culture. And Victor Hugo, the novelist, is the source of several of them. Uh, for example, the Sunken Road. What's that myth?
1: Um, right, well, along Wellington's Ridge, there was a road that ran along the top of the ridge. And there was, at points, this road actually dipped into a little gully. Um, it is described by most people as being a narrow gully about the height of a horse or just more than that and was a relatively easy passing if you took your time in passing on on either foot or horse however uh victor hugo turns this into a massive gully uh almost a valley mm-hmm. that the french cavalry when they make their great charges discover at the last second and literally hundreds of them plummet into it to their deaths um It is described basically that it it literally fills with dead and dying soldiers and horses to the point where the actual, uh, this great dip is filled with flesh and you could actually walk across without actually dropping down at all. Yep. Uh, It is a complete myth.
0: Yeah. uh, But it is remarkably persistent.
1: Yeah. I suppose the problem with Victor Hugo is he didn't go to the battlefield until 50 years after the battle. He actually got a lot of his information from the local peasantry who were obviously probably had heard many stories over the fifty years and he presents it as fact and mm-hmm. there are many there are many facts in his uh, nineteen chapters he devotes to the Battle of Waterloo
0: mm-hmm.
1: where he actually comes up with many things which I am always being quoted. Um, Another perfect example of his uh, sayings are, I, I often get quoted by British people saying that, of course, uh, um, that Wellington after the battle, of course, he said, uh, they've ruined my battlefield because they'd actually built this huge lion mound on it, etc. Right. Um That comes from Victor Hugo. Oh, does it? There's absolutely no evidence it comes from Wellington's mouth at all. Huh. Nobody ever records.
0: It's it's actually in the chapter from, from Victor Hugo. I note I note uh, noted with great interest that you uh, devote absolutely nothing uh, to you um, devote uh, not, none of Wellington's uh, quotes or sayings, which um, people have insisted are we can know what he says from various points at at every point of the battle. None of those really appear in your book, um, and I and I think that's that's because you're careful and you uh, can't find attestation for a lot of them.
1: Yeah. The the problem is that everybody likes to remember exactly what Wellington said. Yeah. uh, You know, uh, a perfect example is at one stage, he orders the guards up to fight the actual Imperial Guard as they arrive, Napoleon's Guard arrive. Now, you know, there are probably 40 different memoirs of that scene mm-hmm. and there are forty different versions of what he said, yeah. uh, and therefore I'm very circumspect about of, rec- of recording anything like that because there is no way that anybody wrote them down that second. Every single one of them wrote them down many hours, if not weeks, if not months, if not years later.
0: Yeah,
1: and their their memories are going to be wrong. They but- they have an idea
0: which is, a, that's just a brilliant example of sourcing. I mean, the reading, understanding the perspective of a source and then investigating it like a detective, um, which you do throughout the book over and over over again. It's really this sort of really patient uh, scholarship, which I really, really admire. Um, you, uh, for example, uh, point out that Wellington is himself a highly unreliable uh, witness.
1: Well, he is certainly later yeah. I would
0: say at the time of the battle he is trying to portray truthfully um,
1: what he knows in his dispatch, which is very much a case of that 's his report of the battle, which was actually very, criticized a lot for its brevity, but you have to understand this man was writing this after having just fought a battle for twelve hours with virtually no sleep right. uh, and was having to report um, you know his reports at that stage include things where he misses out important regiments, actions, and it even invents the names of certain officers because he's obviously got them wrong from the reports. Yeah. But is it not surprising that, no, I with mean, the, you know, with all the confusion of the, the morning after the battle of trying to actually write this thing, it's not surprising it's wrong.
0: No, he's, or, a, he's also, as you make clear, an emotional wreck, as who wouldn't be. Um, absolutely, Even yes. the Iron Duke. I mean, was uh, everyone describes him as crying openly, which, you know, is just, I mean, golly, I mean, you know. God, I mean, that's not what you expect, but there it is. Um, but I no, mean-
1: no, no. Exactly. I mean, you know, he actually describes. Um, you know, the even a, a victorious battlefield is one of the worst places to be. Yes. Uh, um, and, you know, as I said, in his early days, he he is openly honest about um, regarding the Prussians coming in, etc. But I guess with time, many things take over. Um, he, like everybody else, I suppose, as his position becomes greater in the country, uh, his memory becomes perhaps more selective. Um, and as time goes on, people also start embellishing. And in time, those embellishments actually become part of your honest memories. Yes, uh, And, you know, a a perfect example is that on at least two, if not three occasions, Wellington is recorded as having said that he'd met Blücher the night before Waterloo by going across on his own to Arve to actually see him. Mm -hmm. There's absolutely no evidence of this. In fact, you know, the evidence is almost certainly that it didn't happen. But the fact that he actually said it to a a number of people at different occasions would indicate that at some stage in his life, he actually started to believe it himself. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. You've, you've collected an enormous number of primary materials related, not just to Waterloo. There's six volumes of Waterloo documents that you've collected now, right? Uh, yes. But you've collected another 14 about um, various other expeditions to the Netherlands and also to the Peninsular War. Um, yeah. Many were, of these were sort of, as it were, lying in plain sight, and no one had bothered to, uh, to uh, pick them up. How did you find this stuff?
1: I'll be honest. When I started looking for the material... I'll tell you why I started looking to start with. I was reading a lot of histories where I was getting small quotations and I started to suspect that people were making out their point in history or arguing their point by using selected material. Right. And it started making me go and thinking, I want to see the material in its original state. Yes. I want to understand what the person actually wrote and why they were writing it. And to ensure that what is being said to me in these histories is actually an actual portrayal of what they were
0: trying to say. That's, great.
1: That's what started me on the road.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And then you started to go to various archives and started to ferret about for what you could find.
1: Yes, I mean, literally, I started looking either online or going there myself and actually starting to look at what they had. Uh, some of it immediately came to light. Uh, other people who were interested in the subject also then told me about things they'd found, and I went and looked for them and dug them out. But you sometimes even get surprises. It Sometimes it's pure luck. Um, I remember, for example, going to a library in Manchester and I went there to see a specific set of papers. And while I was there, the lady at the desk said to me, Oh, I thought you were here about the Clinton papers. And I actually turned to her and asked what she meant because I hadn't heard of them being there. She said, we won't have heard about them because in uncatalogued, we've never got run to catalog. <laughs> um, and we're talking 130 uh, archive boxes crammed with papers. Uh, if I was to guess, guess we'd be talking half a million pages of papers. Yeah. Uh, from General Clinton, who was in the Peninsula War and at Waterloo, I, I, um,
0: that have I, never been looked at. That's, that's amazing, I I was as we were talking in the pre-podcast, I, I'm familiar with his father, the other Sir Henry Clinton, uh, who um, also, like his son, apparently inherited this enormous, this pack rat quality, since the Clements Collection at the University of Michigan Library, um, their Revolution Collection, is really based upon uh, the senior Henry Clinton's papers. Um, in their thousands and it's it's interesting to know that his son had the same predilection for keeping just about every piece of paper that ever came into his life
1: uh, absolutely down to their actual clothing receipts and everything cleaning yep. receipts um <laughs> i would actually mention as well though that yale has also got a huge collection from both of them as well
0: and that's i didn't i that's incredible that you so you found all the stuff through patience diligence and sort of a, a learned skepticism about what people were telling you which is that's very nice it's very very nice um, would anything else you'd like to uh, s- sum up the, this conversation? Um, in the, I, I, I'm curious. You make the point. Um, I'd just like to hear you on this. That about the the legacy of Waterloo um, is not as clear cut as people would often say it is. What, what do you mean by that?
1: Well, some great claims are sort of made for it, as if there was no war in Europe for a hundred years and that it's um, ended and changed the world. Well, it didn't really, because at the end of the day, there were wars in Europe, and, okay, it did finish Napoleon's career, um, but in many other ways, it, it wasn't a deciding factor in on its own, and would you expect any one day in history to do that to any great extent? Um, what it really did was solidify what is known as the age of Congress in, actually, Europe, whereby it, st- it wasn't the start of it congress has already started by this time but it really pushed europe along the road of thinking pan-european war is a terrible thing uh we don't want it to happen again and they decided that countries would come together over their um disagreements and have a congress and try to bring things to an amicable end it didn't stop uh, wars like the um, Crimean War, it didn't stop the Franco Prussian War, but it did actually stop those wars becoming uh, Europe wide. Or, or uh,
0: worldwide, as Napoleon.
1: Worldwide, effectively, in those yeah. days, yes, you're right. But um, because um, the Congresses achieved a locality to those uh, wars and kept them under control. Um, it was only in 1914 when the Germans
0: refused to go to a Congress the first world war started as we all know and and always in their minds it seems to me there's a a, there's the image of of waterloo um all these professional soldiers uh 1914 all these professional soldiers in the american civil war um robert always wondering how can i achieve another waterloo um it's a rather it's a powerful mythic idea in their heads as well just as much as it must have been for um Romans uh, after the Battle of Cannae um, how to achieve a Cannae
1: No I agree I mean, it, it's, it's one of those rare occasions where um, one day of battle or if we are honest three days of battle right. actually completely uh, end a dynasty um, because it did end uh, Napoleon's dynasty completely um, he had no return from this one this was finally it Mm-hmm. And to Europe, which had been in twenty-three years of virtually constant war, um, you can only imagine—you know—I mean, we know how, what it was like after f- the, the, the five years of the Second World War or whatever—and um, the fact that we actually came to an end. Uh, how relieved you, uh, the world was for that! Yeah. But out of a twenty-three-year war. Yeah. Uh, which had been continuously
0: across the world. And if, you, if we looked at the previous, say, since 1755, I was calculating this up today, there was only about um, that, that, uh, about um, 16 years of peace uh, in between 1755 and 1815. I have to, uh, something like that. Um, yeah, well,
1: I mean, I, I, I suppose you can't put too much together into that p- uh, specific um, statement, because if you actually look, I think it's... I think it's been said that the British Army, I don't think there's actually been a year the British Army hasn't been in operation somewhere for the last two
0: two or three centuries. Yeah, There's
1: always something going on.
0: Yeah. Well, my guest today has been Gareth Glover. He's the author of Waterloo Myth and Reality. I um, heartily endorse it, um, not just as a great way of um, reading about the battle on the 200th anniversary of its uh, fighting, but also as a way of seeing... um, uh, a so-called amateur historian do really professional things about uh, with uh, historical thinking um, Gareth, thanks so much for joining us very much thank, thank you for having me on for more historical thinking go to historicallythinking.org where you can comment on today's program and find show notes links and readings related to today's conversation Historically Thinking is recorded in the studio of WAUG the student radio station of Augustana College. Our program's editor is John Ruddatt. Beth Limbach keeps the schedules in sync. Matt Leihas keeps WAUG Studio running. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.